Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Welcome back, everyone, to another Pain Talk podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maureen Allen. Today, we're going to continue talking about opiate analgesics. Uh, We're going to dig a little bit deeper. I'm going to try and keep this as simple as possible. This is a very controversial area, but it's a very interesting area. And it's an area that we need to become better at managing. Uh, I think about other types of pharmacology we use in medicine that have potential to cause harm. And I always come to the anticoagulations, especially with my background in emergency medicine. Uh, And every patient I see where I'm considering the use either of a thrombolytic, an anticoagulant, an antiplatelet agent, it's all about risk stratification. It's all about communication. It's all all about managing the risk with the patient. So I see opiate analgesics in the same category, really important medications. I couldn't do my job without them. But they do have some risk and do pose some harm in specific individuals who have some vulnerabilities. So we will briefly talk about how we would risk stratify those patients, how we would manage that risk, and how we would help that patient uh, manage themselves through uh, their pain crisis. Now, obviously, it's going to differ depending on the type of pain that the patient is managing, whether it's acute pain, chronic pain, or pain at the end of life. And this is where I find my hat uh, as an eMERGE doc, as well as a palliative care physician, as well as a physician who also works in the opiate recovery program, really helps me approach this in a very, very um, safe way. Uh, while still addressing the patient's suffering. So let's get into this. We know that opiate analgesics are an incredibly important family of medications that have been used to manage pain, have been around for centuries. I really couldn't do my job without them. But they do have, as I indicated, inherent risks in vulnerable populations. They are very important, though, in our, in our uh, toolbox that we use every day to manage pain. And the important thing is that they are one tool in that toolbox. There are many, many other tools that we can be using as well. So the most concerning complications is where I really like to focus, although there are some adverse effects as well that we'll briefly talk about. But the most concerning uh, complications that I try and manage with respect to risk are opiate-induced pain, opiate use disorder or opiate addiction, as well as respiratory depression, uh, and hopefully uh, not uh, to see an outcome like death associated with their use. But also I think we need to bring in the risk of opiate diversion. Now, I want to make clear right from the start, when we're using opiate analgesics and we've made a decision with the patient to use an opiate analgesic in the management of the patient's pain, the risk of an opiate use disorder is extremely low for acute pain. It changes considerably in the chronic pain population. So if we look at the number needed to harm, we're looking at a number of 1 out of 7,864. So that risk is really low and when we look at opiate use disorders. So addiction itself needs time, it needs repetition, it also needs a vulnerable brain. And we did talk about that in a previous podcast. So I believe, especially when we're, we're dispensing opiates, that diversion should be more of a concern to us. And when I say diversion, diversion happens in different ways. But this is where the uh, opioids that we're, we're dispensing to patients and to families are not being used by the individual that they are intended to. So this may be where a teenager in the home Uh, discovers that these uh, pills are there, may decide to use those pills for whatever reason, or that family member could actually give it to someone 
uh, to use for whatever reason, uh, some type of an acute pain process. Um, it can also be something that is sold in the marketplace. It can be a situation where you have an elderly patient who has a child who has an opiate use disorder. There may be some issues around spousal abuse, child abuse. There can be all kinds of different reasons why that medication is being diverted. So it's important that when we're, we're trying to balance the management of the patient's suffering, that we're always trying to keep that patient safe. So personally, I believe that we always need to acknowledge suffering, but always lean into safety when we're dispensing these medications. So we need to think of many things to consider. That's just a few of the things that we need to think about. Um, we also need to know the type of uh, pain that we're managing, as I had mentioned. So acute pain, chronic pain, or pain at the end of life. Our goals of care are not to take away pain. Unless we're focusing more on the end-of-life patient, then our goals are going to change. Our management of pain in the acute care, as well as in the chronic care patient, is to improve sleep and improve function. But our targeted reduction in pain with the use of the opioid is not going to be the same. With acute pain, you want that 80% reduction. With chronic pain, it's only a 30% reduction. So often if you push harder in the chronic pain population, because these patients are never pain-free, is you end up with sedation and all kinds of complications related to that opiate. So our goal is really not to take the pain away in the acute and chronic pain population. So leaning into safety while acknowledging suffering should be really our goal. So as mentioned, these uh, opiate analgesics have been used for centuries. They uh, are well-known, well-established. Um, we also consider them to be used primarily for moderate or severe pain, usually for mild pain. Uh, we tend not to be using opiate analgesics. We're using other types of strategies. Now, we should also bring other strategies in as well. I don't think opiate should be the only pharmacology or the only approach we should be using in, in uh, acute pain. These agents are generally considered safe when they're used properly. And in my experience, what often happens is that clinicians and prescribers are not very good at monitoring patients. They're good at dispensing these medications, but they're not good at monitoring. Whether that monitoring requires a urine drug test, and we'll get into that in a sec, or it requires limiting the quantity of pills that the patient is going to have in their home. But we're not very good at monitoring patients. I do believe there is an understanding uh, in terms of what these opiates are trying to accomplish, how they work, but we're not good at monitoring these medications. So we need to understand the risk, just like we would if we were giving a patient uh, an anticoagulant or an antiplatelet uh, agent. We need to understand how these drugs work. We need to know the complications. We need to have those discussions with patients on how they're going to manage the risk of those medications. So how they work is that they bind to specific receptors. And these receptors are both in the central nervous system, but they're also outside the central nervous system, primarily in the gastrointestinal tract. There are some sensory nerves that have these receptors, but they're also on mast cells. So we talked about in the previous podcast around neuroinflammation, uh, and some opioids, when they uh, attach to these mast cells, can release histamine. So it can actually trigger this inflammatory response. And the classic opioid that does that is actually morphine. So it's quite common to see morphine uh, cause a histamine release Sometimes the patient's blood pressure will drop, or you'll notice some flushing. So these receptors include the mu receptor, the kappa, and the delta. The mu receptor, when we think about opiate analgesics, the mu receptor uh, is probably the most important. It not only is linked to analgesia, but it's also linked to that euphoric effect that we sometimes see. And the opioid that tends to uh, lead to that euphoria more commonly in my experience, although everybody's brain is going to be different, is oxycodone. 
And it's quite common for patients, uh, often when I'm curious about uh, uh, how the opiate affects them, and this is when I'm in my opiate recovery program, what was the experience that they had? And what I find consistently, consistently with oxycodone is that those patients will often describe this complete uh, engulfment of a wonderful feeling. They have this energy. They feel that they don't care about anything. They just feel wonderful. Uh, some of them, especially if they were using opiates for pain, will not describe euphoria. Some of them will describe it as an energy. They can get their things done. They just feel like they're on top of the world. And so this is that euphoric effect that you'll see uh, that the mu uh, uh, receptor, when the opiate attaches to that receptor, will, will actually stimulate. So what's interesting about the different opiates is some of them will actually uh, stimulate their what we call full agonists. So they'll stimulate that mu receptor. Some are partial, buprenorphine being the classic one, and some actually block the mu receptor. So they can also be categorized in different ways as well. We think of endogenous opioids. So this is the endorphins. Uh, there are different kinds, other types of endogenous uh, opioids. There are also the opioids that are derived from opium. So the opium al alkaloids, so morphine and codeine are the classics. There are semi-synthetics. So this is the oxycodone, the hydromorphone. And then there are synthetics uh, that are purely made in the lab. This is methadone and fentanyl. There are also different classes of opioids that we're not going to get into in this podcast. So most of them are well absorbed uh, if you're administering them subcutaneous, intramuscular, or an oral route. Although there are other types of, of uh, routes that we can talk about in just a few minutes. Because of the first pass effect uh, when we give these drugs orally, they might often need uh, much higher doses when you're comparing it to parental doses. So typically the parental doses are going to be much less than the oral doses. And typically we think of about half of a difference. So if I'm giving someone you know, two milligrams of morphine uh, orally, that would be one milligram subcutaneously. The other thing that's very important when we're, when we're understanding how we're using opioids is that they are, when they're ingested in the body, they are converted in a large part to these uh, metabolites, these po polar metabolites. So some are active, some are inactive. And uh, they are readily, as a rule, excreted by the kidney. So kidney function becomes very important when we're administering or when we're making decisions around opiate analgesics. So other alternative routes that you often see, and this is where palliative care kind of pushes the envelope, and that's why I love palliative care, is that oftentimes we're doing things that may not be conventional, but it's really with a purpose of trying to get patients more comfortable. So you will see uh, CAD pumps. Now, CAD pumps are, are continuous analgesic controlled pumps that are often used in surgical patients as well, where they can self-administer. Uh, you can also use uh, intranasal uh, opioids. So I think about procedural sedation in the emergency room. So fentanyl can be given uh, internasal with an atomizer. You can also see it in uh, mucosal lozenge or in some of these suckers that are often used in pediatric medicine around procedural sedation. Now you can understand the risk and the concern around that. So it's very, very important that these opiates are kept away from kids because there is a temptation to obviously see that as candy. So there can be detrimental overdoses, which there have been in the past. You can also have the transdermal route and uh, the rectal suppository route as well. So transdermal routes are 
would include something like the fentanyl patch or the duragesic, but there's also buprenorphine that you see out there, transbutone. Now, what's interesting in uh, the community that I live in, it's a very rural community. We're very isolated, and we really don't have access to CAD pumps or nurses 24-7, especially for patients who are wanting to remain at home, uh, who have life-limiting illnesses, and who want to die at home. So one of the techniques that we've used uh, to support families in rural communities is the use of atomized methadone. And what you're doing is you're actually just taking the internasal atomizer and distributing the methadone, either 10 milligrams per mil. Oftentimes, these patients need very, very low dosing of methadone, very, very different than the opiate use disorder patients, uh, that uh, you can atomize this on their buccal mucosa. And that paper has been published. It's a case series paper. You can get that online. It's uh, atomized methadone. It, uh, we scanned about 35 patients, and we were able to keep these patients at home with a minimum of three breakthrough doses in 24 hours. So it's a really good technique that I've often pulled on in the intensive care unit when we're trying to get a patient extubated who has opiate-induced toxicity uh, and we're trying to get their pain more stable. Or if you do have somebody with an opiate use disorder and you want to make sure that you're continuing their opiate use, obviously you're not going to continue to mix that with the Tang juice. It really is the solution by itself until you can get that patient stable back on their regular uh, routine medication. But you don't want these patients missing any doses, if at all possible, if they've been taking it. And obviously, you're going to go through those motions to confirm that they're using their opiate and uh, you're just going to transfer it. And there's no difference really between the atomized bucally versus the oral medication in terms of the dosing. So you don't have to do any uh, dosing equivalencies or any conversions. So it obviously you're going to keep it in that framework of safety, just as we do with any other opioid. Methadone is a very interesting opioid, and I will do a separate podcast on that because it is a very controversial opioid, has a lot of stigma. But I'll tell you from my wearing my hat of a, as a palliative care physician, as a uh, in the opiate recovery program, I couldn't do my job without methadone. Methadone is a really interesting drug. So uh, there's lots of different clinical uses you see out there for opioids. Primarily, we use it mostly for analgesia, for the moderate to severe pain. Uh, historically, it has been used for diarrhea. Now, typically, that's not acute diarrhea. It's going to be chronic. There has been a lot of discussion around the use of cardiovascular disease. I believe most of the use of opioids around cardiovascular disease and the change in vascular tone uh, really uh, has been debunked and that it really shouldn't be seen as the uh, treatment in some of our cardiovascular patients that uh, morphine would be appropriate. And it really is going to, from my perspective, it's really going to be based on how the patient is presenting, uh, what is their renal function like, uh, what are their risk factors like. So I risk stratify these patients like I do with any other medication. It also has been historically used for the treatment of cough, uh, not acute cough. These are patients with chronic cough or cough at the end of life many adverse effects to opiates. The biggest one probably is constipation and nausea. And it always astounds me that patients get uh, dispensed an opiate analgesic, but there isn't a lot of discussion on preventing constipation and also managing nausea. So what opioids do is they decrease that motility in the gut. Water gets pulled out of the gut, so these patients are really prone to constipation and nausea. So a really good strategy is to be very proactive. Uh, Usually, if you look at the literature, probably the most useful uh, motility agent is going to be something like Sinecot. The other thing that we like to use in palliative care is metoclopramide. Because of that motility, it also works in the gut as well as in the brain. So it tends to be a little bit better. You see a tendency to move more to uh, anti-nauseants like Zofran 
But unfortunately, in the, in the, especially in patients who are on opiates chronically, it can be very, very constipating. So it really is not ideal unless that patient is getting chemotherapy. So the uh, Oda- uh, Zofran or Ondasteron um, is really uh, more effective in the, the blood-brain barrier. So these are patients that are on uh, chemotherapy agents primarily. Other side effects that we see, I mean, obviously sedation, especially that opiate-naive patient. So there are higher risk of falls, especially in the elderly. Other things that we might see uh, with respect to nausea, and nausea is a really important symptom to be aggressive with, as is pruritus or itching. So itching can be a very distressing symptom. We often refer to that as a pain equivalent in palliative care. So, um, yeah, so about 25% of patients will complain of nausea. Uh, When we look at sedation and decreased cognition, so the elderly are very prone to this, uh, and this really has to do with that central nervous system effect of these medications. And so we want to be very proactive around these. So it's very, very important to start very, very low with a short-acting opioid, in particular in the elderly if it's appropriate. Um, And in patients that get into problems, especially if they're starting to show some toxicity, worsening confusion, or worsening pain, you need to consider a change in that opioid. And I have seen a patient, an elderly patient, get opiate-induced pain with one dose, and it is actually in the literature. So we always have to be thinking about these things. The other thing I just want to briefly talk about is the characteristics of opioids. So when I'm having conversations with patients around their opiate use, especially if I'm seeing some problematic use, I try and separate that person out from the medication, and I try and help them understand how these medications behave with respect to tolerance and dependency. So 100% of patients, when they get put on an opiate, will develop tolerance. 100% will develop. And so what tolerance means is that, uh, and then I'll just roll this back for a second. So this is how I would frame the conversation. So if I'm having a conversation with patient around problematic use of opiates, the first thing I want to do, especially if they're using that opiate medically, I'm going to start the conversation. You're using this opiate to manage your pain. Does that opiate do anything else for you? And this is where the patient may bring in the energy. If I'm having that conversation with a patient who's using it non-medically, so is using it illicitly, from an illicit getting it from the community, buying it off the street, Um, and I ask them, the question I ask is, how does it help you? What does it do for you? Because you want to frame that conversation around tolerance and dependency around that. So how the conversation would really roll out would be you're using that medication. So you're using your oxycodone for pain. Does it do anything else for you? So it gives you energy. So 100% of people who are using this medication for pain are going to develop tolerance. So tolerance means that you're going to need more of that medication to get the same reduction in your pain. 100% of people are going to develop dependency. Dependency happens in days, is that when I pull that drug away, what you're going to experience is withdrawal. And what withdrawal will feel to you is not, I'm in withdrawal, it'll feel like my pain is worse. And often what happens is a patient will present to their family physician, I can't sleep. And that's one of the reasons why uh, hypnotic, sedative hypnotics get added in as they start to not sleep because their short-acting opiates are starting to cause some withdrawal. So what happens then is that we start to see these problematic behaviors where patients will start to double up the medication. Uh, they may even start to alter the route at that point. And what I find consistently in the patients who are using opiates for pain is they're not recognizing that the fact that they're doubling up their chewing is actually a a problematic uh, behavior that is demonstrating that more likely they are are moving into that more life-threatening complication of the opioid, which is addiction. 
So addiction is what I would consider the life-threatening complication of the opioid that is being used. And this is where the vulnerable brain gets hijacked by that repetitive use, gets hijacked by time, and the changes that are actually happening in the brain. So the risk of addiction happening in someone who's using an opioid for pain is only about 9 to 11%. But if you've got a vulnerable brain, meaning you've got a brain under the age of 30, if you have severe pain and other types of, of experiences that are coming in, whether it's fear, whether it's anxiety or depression, that opioid is going to help, but it's going to start to drive that, the, the use of that medication. So it is important for us to recognize that there are two pathways to an opiate use disorder. There's the medical use pathway and there's a non-medical use pathway. They both are going to need uh, uh, FDA-approved medication to help stabilize that. And primarily what we're talking about there is methadone or suboxone. So that will be for another podcast. So let's look at our approach to acute pain if we're using opiate analgesics, making that decision around what we're going to use. And the important thing is that our general approach always begins with the talking points. It's important to reframe pain, put it in a healthy context, look at interventions that we can be doing. So if we're looking at a fracture, we want to make sure we stabilize that fracture. We're going to look at alternative therapies for that patient. And then we're going to consider pharmaceuticals. So I always like to have something on a regular basis, whether that's acetaminophen or it's ibuprofen on a regular basis. Obviously, patients with high blood pressure, patients with gut problems who are on any anticoagulants, you're not going to introduce those anti-inflammatories. But I might do a regular dose of Tylenol, and then I might add in some opioid as a PRN or other type of medication, depending on what type of pain they're presenting with. So if they're presenting with acute shingles, I might do a regular dose of Tylenol, and then add in a low dose of something like an anticonvulsant like Lyrica or Gabapentin. I mean, that's the discussion I usually have with the patient based on risk factors. So things like their renal function, things like their opiate tolerance. Are they opiate tolerant? Are they naive? What other pharmacology are they on? Those sedative hypnotics obviously change how I approach this. If I bring in the opioid, I am going to risk stratify that patient. And I do use the opiate risk tool, although it, it actually has not been um, validated in the pain population. But it is a great way of kind of framing things. It's really what I do with that information and how I have that conversation with the patient. So if that patient is very high risk, greater than eight. It doesn't mean I don't use an opioid. It means that we have a conversation. So we help that patient manage risk. If that patient has had a previous opiate use disorder, oftentimes they are not wanting to bring in opiates. So I think it's really important to look at what they want, how we can support them, and uh, how we would approach uh, their acute pain. So um, they really, if you were looking at how much opioid and how for how much long, how, for how long, sorry, uh, there have been some studies to look at what, what do people actually do with their opioids. And what they find is that most patients do not use, as a rule, more than six pills. And that you know, giving them less than 10 is probably reasonable for an acute uh, pain presentation. So they don't need a lot of quantity. So oftentimes I'm looking at, okay, let's look at from the emergency department, less than three days, less than 10 tablets. I'm going to move away from those euphorant type opiates. So I'm going to be less likely to use things like oxycodone, hydromorphone, going to be focused more sort of on morphine-based or codeine-based. I'm also going to avoid combination opioids. So the problem with things like tile number three or tramiset is that you have multiple substances mixed up in there. So you have Tylenol, you have your SNRIs, you have your SSRIs, you also have caffeine. 
So if a patient starts to run into some complications, such as an opiate use disorder, and they're being taken off their tile number threes, they're going to go to the drugstore and start buying tile number ones. And they're going to use a huge quantity. And before you know it, their liver is going to get into trouble. And that happens a fair bit, we find, in our community. It was an interesting study that we did looking at our uh, pharmacies to see how much Tylenol number one was actually coming out of those pharmacies. And this is would be a population of 3,300 people. So we're talking less than 5,000 population. In one month, there was over 78,000 tablets of Tylenol number one. So what that demonstrated to me is that we had a lot of people that were struggling, uh, either trying to bridge therapies or really struggling with some kind of a substance use disorder. So it really was important that we got a better handle on this and, and find a way to, to approach this from a community perspective. So how much short-acting opioid is enough? And ideally, we want to use a short-acting opioid, so we don't want to initially start with long-acting opioids. Um, and the reason why is that the long-acting can, can cause huge problems around respiratory depression. Um, we want to look at what other things are in the mix. So we talked about hypnotic sedatives, liver or renal disease. Are they elderly? You know, all those things become really important. So that's really how I approach uh, opiate analgesics. I hope you found that helpful. Uh, we'll talk in another podcast around how do I approach this if somebody has an opiate use disorder or if somebody has chronic pain. So how would I introduce an opioid in someone who has acute pain who's also living with a persistent pain syndrome? So those are things that we can talk about in another podcast. So I'm going to sign out for now. Thanks for staying with me and we'll be seeing you next week. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.